Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Reporting to you live from the decks of the O-Search. And we are right now in the saltwater estuary between the Atlantic Ocean and the state of Georgia. Tonight's interview is with DJ Latiri. DJ is originally from Sedley, Virginia. He is a deckhand in the O-Search, which is a vehicle for scientists to have access to animals that they would normally not have access to, namely the great white shark. The O-Search has traveled all over the world, including Guadalupe, Brazil, Chile, South Africa, Australia, the Gulf of Mexico, and both the east and west coast of the United States. DJ, thank you so much for setting aside some time during this beautiful sunset to join me here on the trail less traveled on your boat. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you made it out to the boat to actually do this. DJ, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? So I grew up in Sedley, Virginia. It's a teeny tiny little town in the Tidewater area. And outdoor adventure became a part of my life pretty much instantaneously because of where my home was located. I grew up in a tiny little house actually in the middle of the woods. So our driveway went back into the woods and then it opened up into like a pretty good clearing. And then there was our house and the way things pretty much operated on a daily basis was when like me and my sister would get home from school, my parents would pretty much just lock us out of the house, go outside, play, lock the door. We'll call you in dinner and lunch or whatever's ready. So then we had to figure out stuff to do. You know, it's not like I had neighbors really to go hang out with or anything. So had a pretty solid pond there too, like a two acre pond that had two islands in the middle. So I spent a lot of time when it hadn't rained in a while, walking to those islands and exploring them, climbing trees, building forts, hanging around outside, chasing animals, doing what I could. And then I started trying to catch animals, I guess you could say. And then I started bringing snakes around and then my parents were like, Hey, maybe you should stop bringing snakes around. You know, that's kind of dangerous for a seven, eight year old. I don't know, I've always enjoyed exploring and walking around in the woods being by myself. You know, going through school and everything, I decided I wanted to major in environmental science. So I ended up going to school for that and had a lot of pretty cool classes that actually gave us field experience as opposed to just sitting in a classroom and like reading the text and going, yeah, I bet it's really cool out there. Wish I could find out. Probably the best class I took was field ecology. It was only a three-week class, but it was a whole semester's worth of stuff in that three weeks. I learned a lot about herpetology, so I got to go out and catch a lot of amphibians and reptiles and weigh them and do things like that. It's always kind of fascinating me to interact with animals, and then I got entranced, more or less, not by the animals themselves, but the way they interact with each other. So that's why I kind of like really dug ecology, species interaction. I always wanted to know how something was interacting with another one, food webs, food chains, turf cascades, all that stuff, parlayed into what I'm doing now. O-Search as an organization has been around since like 2007. We have a global shark tracker. 
So it's actually an app you can get on your phone and you can track all the sharks that we've tagged on your own. You can use our website as well. So that got founded actually in 2012 and that's when I found out about it and then I immediately got it and then I was like, what, I can track sharks? This is awesome. Hell yeah. So I just kept doing that and uh, got to the point where even my professors in school were telling me to like pay attention and not track sharks on my phone and this, that and the other thing. And I was like, no, I think I'm going to keep doing it, blah, blah, blah. So then I actually landed a job here. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. We are on the O-Search Research Vessel, which is a boat that travels all over the world researching the great white shark as well as the tiger shark. And there's a group of people walking by right now, and they're admiring the boat as I did when I showed up. It's a pretty big boat. How big is your boat, DJ? This boat is 130 feet long and 35 feet wide. Well, we're going to come back and we're going to do a tour of that vessel, but it's time now to play a song. So, DJ, I'd like for you to think of a song that reminds you of your early childhood adventures. Well, this is an easy one. Call Me the Breeze by Leonard Skinner. I guess the idea behind it, Call Me the Breeze, says I'm just going to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. You know, there's no real stationary place for me. And that's always kind of resonated with me on a personal level. And now back to the trail less traveled with Mandela. We are standing on the deck of the O-Search research vessel. This is a boat that has been all over the world researching the great white shark. Mainly Chile, the Galapagos, Guadalupe, South Africa, Australia, the Gulf of Mexico, and both the east and west coast of the United States. They also do research on the tiger shark, but mainly the great white shark. And I'm standing here with DJ, and DJ is a deckhand on the ship. It's a dream job for him. And right now, it's docked on the Brunswick River, which is the saltwater estuary between mainland Georgia and the Atlantic Ocean. And we have a real treat now. I'm going to hand the mic over to DJ, and we're going to walk around this boat that's 130 feet long and he's going to give us a tour. As we stand here on the main deck, you can see the lift is what we call it, and it's actually the platform we use to get the animals out of the water. So we're a one-of-a-kind vessel in that we actually take our sharks out of the water to tag them and collect the samples from them as opposed to doing it over the side of a boat. We believe that taking the animal out of the water is a much safer process for both the animal and the scientists involved. We actually have blood work to show that it calms the animal down as well to be out of the water that way as opposed to being still in the water. The platform is about a little shy of 18 feet wide and about 20 feet long. And the platform works on hydraulics with a large tower. It's actually an old forklift from a dockyard that has been installed on the boat, and it will actually lift up and scoot over to the starboard side of the deck and then lower down into the water when we use it. On top of that platform, as we currently sit is a 28 foot contender that we use actually as our fishing vessel to catch the sharks so we'll catch them on that boat and then bring them back here to the mothership which is the deck we're standing on and put them in the lift to get them out the largest one we've ever caught actually on this boat is a uh, 17 foot 9 inches and it pretty much took up the entire platform this one was caught down in guadalupe i believe that was the longest one and then the largest one was a pregnant female that was a uh, 4500 pounds to my right here, we have our other tender, which is a 23-foot safe boat, and that's our car. 
we use that to transport people to and from land to the mothership because we have people who come out when we're actually on a fishing expedition for day trips and high school kids, press people, anyone who really wants to come hang out. Before we move on to other parts of the boat, can you tell us a little bit more about catching the sharks with this boat and moving them to the main boat and then getting the shark actually out of the water onto the main deck of this boat? The contender will be launched off of the mothership, and aboard that contender will be our fishing team, which includes Captain Brett, our first mate Todd, and Brandon, our ship manager, and Chris Fisher, our expedition leader. They'll go out there, and they will sit on the contender and look for sharks, hope to get one. Bait sharks, we have seal decoys, things like that, anything to kind of really grab their attention. Everything is done on a hand line. We don't use rods and reels. So everything's done on a hand line. If they hook a shark up, they'll call us, and by us I mean me and the engineer, over on the radio at the mothership here and say, hey, we're hooked up, get the lift ready. And at that point, me and the engineer will clear the deck, get everything ready for the lift to go over, we'll shift the water in the ballast tanks and make sure we don't you know, tip over, and then get the lift up and over down into the water. At that point, the container should be arriving back to the mothership. So sometimes they're hundreds of yards out and they have to walk the animal back. And at which point, the container with the shark on the line will actually drive on the outside of the cradle. And that's when Brett will jump into the lift with the animal. And it'll just be him and the animal in the lift in about, say, chest deep of water. At which point, he'll steer it into the cradle and then we'll lift them both up out of the water. Once we lift them up out of the water, we'll put a wet towel over their eyes and a saltwater hose in their mouth to keep them breathing. And the towel actually acts as like blinders on a horse. It just kind of calms them right down. So then that allows the rest of the scientists and people collecting samples to get on board and be close to the animal without any sort of dangerous activity. Keep going from there since we're on the subject. What are the researchers doing with a shark at that point once it's on the deck? So once it's on the deck, every animal gets about 12 to 15 research projects done on it. So we take blood samples, muscle tissue samples, slime samples. If it's a male, we have to see if it's sexually mature, so we'll take a sperm sample. Get fin clips for genetics. Some of the muscle samples is protein samples, which shows us their diet, really. And then we install some tags on them. So one of the tags is an internal acoustic tag. So we have a veterinarian who will come and she'll actually open the animal on its underside, install the acoustic tag, and then surgically sew up the incision. All of those samples will roll the shark and then install our GPS spot tag. So that spot tag is actually what shows us where the animal is. So that goes right actually on the top of their dorsal fin. And it has two receptors that when the shark is submerged underwater, the tag is off. And when it surfaces, it breaks that current, and which sends the signal up to allow for us to know where they are. If it just surfaces and breaks the current, it tells us that it's alive and swimming. But it has to be surfaced for 90 seconds for us to actually get an exact GPS you know, kind of location on it. And then once all of that has been done and executed, all of the researchers and everyone get off the lift. And then the only people left on the lift are our photographer and Captain Brett, at which point we will lower the animal back into the water and swim it off the deck. And then we all celebrate. And that takes like 15 minutes to do the whole thing. It's really similar to like a NASCAR pit stop. Is there a tranquilizer in play or is it just the wet towel on its eyes to keep it calm? No, there's no tranquilizer whatsoever. The shark is alive and well the entire time we are operating on it. That's one of the things that we 
rely on really because i mean if it's a tranquilizer you know it's really hard to judge how long it actually works and we're trying to get the animal in and out as fast as we can so actually just the wet towel just kind of dulls their senses and at the same time these animals are feeling gravity for the first time so if you imagine being 1500 pounds and all of a sudden you're feeling gravity you don't really have the ability to flop too much you can wiggle i mean i've been bitch slapped by a couple tails but (laughs) it's nothing you know they calm right down after that there's also a guy on a tail line so we put a tail rope on them to hold that still too and you can feel them flexing really before they make any sort of movement so it allows for that guy on the tail rope to be like hey she's moving everyone step away for a second let the shark do whatever she has to do and then she calms back down is there anything stopping them from just turning to the side, opening their mouth, and ripping someone's arm off? No, not at all. But luckily that hasn't happened yet, nor do I think it really can, just because of the safety precautions that we take for it is, you know, we don't put anyone in a situation where they could be at risk. Sharks have like an hourglass-shaped turning radius, so if you're within the insides of the hourglass, you're pretty much gravy. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. The sun has set. It's a beautiful reflection on the water. We are on the O-Search Research Vessel, which is a boat that travels all over the world researching the great white shark as well as the tiger shark. Unfortunately, we're both getting bitten by mosquitoes because we are outside on location right now um, on the saltwater estuary between the Atlantic Ocean and Georgia. I'm going to head it back over to DJ, and we're going to continue the tour of the 130-foot boat. So I'm going to take you guys into what we call the tackle bar. So we call this room the tackle bar. Inside of it, there's a couple shelves that we uh, keep all of our tackle and gear on for shark fishing as well as bait fishing. On the top shelf, the very top shelf, right now is cleared out. At night, it's our bar. That's why the room's called the tackle bar. But we're on an expedition. It's what the scientists that come aboard and the research team use as their kind of mobile laboratory. So they'll have microscopes, blood spinners, some other scientific equipment I don't know how to use all up here. And that's so a lot of the sampling that they do is time sensitive. So when they get off the lift from collecting the samples from the shark, they'll come in here and immediately start processing. As well as that in this room, uh, on the ceiling, there is a vast array of rods and reels. We don't use any of these rods and reels for catching sharks. It's all for bait and recreation and for lucky dinner. We also have in here an ice machine, which is important to any fishing operation for bait and cold drinks. Next to our workbench in here, we have about 12 dive tanks, and we can fill those dive tanks here on location. We have a compressor for it. We don't do too much diving. I heard that they used to do a lot of diving before my time. That's more for cleaning the hole or like our photographer sometimes will swim off with the animal and try and get those shots. Up in the very front there is our provision room. So when we go out on a fishing expedition, we're out there for 24 days at a time and we can sleep 22 people and we got to feed them three meals a day. So that whole room gets filled with goods. And then we also have a walk-in fridge and freezer for those same reasons. I'm standing here in the tackle bar room, and uh, I think there's at least 30 rods, 20 on the ceiling, and then another maybe 12 over in the corner, and then the most massive lines. It's been a while since I've seen lines that big. Can you tell us a little bit more about these? So these here are just 80s and 130s. We don't use those for sharks. We did use them, uh, in fact, actually for the juveniles that we caught earlier this year because it's hard to handline a juvenile because they like to hang out on the bottom. So the purpose of handlining is to be able to control the set of the hook and make sure nothing gets foul hooked and it goes properly into the corner of their mouth. But 
for the babies it's a little bit different because they're not coming to the surface but we use custom-made mustad circle hooks which prevents them from swallowing the hook foul hooking things like that which provides for the safety of the animal and then safety of us as well to remove the hook easier without having to you know shove our hand in their mouth because you don't want to put your hand in a shark mouth really all right, so DJ's holding the custom hook for great white sharks right now. It's about the size of his head, and it's custom made by Mustad. Yeah, M-U-S-T-A-D. They're a tackle company that custom makes our circle hooks for us to help us take care of animals better. Tell us a little bit more about why this specific hook, the circle hook, doesn't hurt the animal. Circle hooks, the way they're shaped, actually is as the opposite of J hooks. They're curved at the barb and we also grind the barb down before we use it to make it even easier on the animal but as opposed to a j-hook which is a sharp point with a sharp barb coming straight up and down and that's usually used for you know sport fishing or any kind of harvesting you would be doing with the animals and everything we do is catch and release so we don't want that possibility to happen j-hooks are very easy to be swallowed because of their shape and everything and they pretty much set immediately whereas a circle hook not only prevents you from swallowing it but even if you should swallow it an animal could spit it back up without accidentally hooking themselves in the gills or something like that a moment ago dj you mentioned that the subadults don't go to the surface that often do you guys know why they hang out in the bottom earlier this year we were off the coast of long island new york off montauk about two miles out and we were fishing for juveniles and we weren't really having much luck captain brett said genius when it comes to catching fish he can catch anything really so he kind of moved us around a little bit and then he got on the spot and then we caught nine in six days and most of them were hanging out between the bottom and the middle as opposed to anywhere on the surface where we get a lot of our large whites coming up and inspecting co decoys and things like that all right let's continue the tour got some led zeppelin playing in the background here We're heading downstairs. We just went down the stairs. Uh, this here is what we call our pump room. Our hydraulic pumps for our crane, our lift, and our anchor system. Underneath our feet, actually, underneath the floor here, is fuel tanks and a freshwater tank. Down here, we also have bait freezers, a water making station. So we make all of our own fresh water here. So we'll take raw seawater right out of the ocean, run it through an RO system, and make all of our own fresh water for our heads sinks showers water hoses anything like that but we don't really drink that water that's not for drinking water per se because it's a little acidic after going through the desalination process and it's running through like 26 year old steel pipes we were running through about a pallet of cases of drinking water per trip so that's kind of aggressive and way too much plastic to be wasting so we started making our own drinking water so we just added a couple filters to the water making station one was a calcium carbonate filter to bring that ph back up to a neutral level and we started making our own drinking water and then we all started on crew and our guests aboard started using reusable water bottles in order to kind of reduce our use of plastic. And then we worked with one of our sponsors, Costa Del Mar, on this kick plastic campaign. So we've reduced from a pallet of case of drinking water to eight or nine, the major cutback there. So that's good. Also down here, we have four barrels of Kentucky bourbon. Jefferson's here, bourbon company out of Kentucky. They give us some barrels to put on board here. 
the constant rocking of the boat as well as the salt air and the pressure changing keeps the flavor pretty much alive and going fresh as opposed to just sitting in a warehouse and letting it get kind of stale. So they'll operate through there. We'll swap out every, say, six to eight months, get a new batch coming in, and then everything they sell as part of the agreement is they give like a kickback per year to science and education purposes. Yeah, it's a really cool bottle. Jefferson's Ocean Aged at Sea, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, very small batch. And that's the boat right there on the top, on the label of the Jefferson's Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. There's a picture of the Osearch boat on the top of it. That's really cool. We're going to come back. We're going to head back up into the house of the boat, but let's take a break. So, DJ, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of the ocean, which is apparently your favorite place in the world. Yeah, the ocean's definitely my favorite place in the world ever since I was a kid. But a song that reminds me of the ocean would be uh, Coastline Journey by Mishka. Some solid acoustic work throughout it, and lyrics are pretty solid and just make you think of the ocean. It's all about... I'm not a surfer, but it's all about chasing waves and finding a good spot on the ocean, as well as the mystery of the ocean herself. We return to the trail less traveled. We are standing aboard the O-Search, which is a research vessel that's traveled all over the world researching the great white shark. This boat has been to Chile, the Galapagos Islands, Guadalupe, Australia, South Africa, the Gulf of Mexico, and both the east and west coast of the United States. I'm standing here with DJ, who is a deckhand on the ship. It is a dream job for him, and I'm very excited and happy for him that he gets to be on this boat. And right now it's docked off the coast of Brunswick, Georgia, basically on the saltwater estuary between the Atlantic Ocean and Georgia. We were last leaving off on a tour of the boat. This is a 130-foot boat, so it is a pretty big tour. We are back on the deck. We're heading to the house of the boat, but there is a workout room, and I think DJ is going to talk to you guys a little bit about some of the activities that perhaps you guys do on the boat. Back out towards the house right next to the breezeway here, we have what I call the -the state-of-the-art gymnasium. We don't charge membership fees. We don't body shame, nothing like that. As long as you want to get stronger, you're welcome. But um, (laughs) this is actually a really cool gift. We didn't have a gym up here for as long as I had been on the boat. And then after our New York expedition, we met a guy up there named Adam Rosanti. And we gave him a tour of the boat. And he said, hey, you know, this boat's great, but uh, you guys are missing a gym. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know. Just kind of our everyday activities act as a gym. He's like, no, 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 I'll send you a gym. So actually, Adam hooked us up with this gym. Just a bench and a bar and a squat rack. But it definitely gets its use because, I mean, you have to be strong for everything in life, especially catching sharks and working on a vessel. So we're really grateful that Adam could send us this. And on the other side of the deck, there's a basketball hoop. Yeah, we got a basketball goal as well. That's for sanity purposes more than exercise. You know, if you're out on the ocean for an extended period of time, you get a little stir crazy. You got to kind of ease it up. So a lot of really, really serious games of horse have gone down out here and been settled. And we talked about the hydraulics of this tower that lifts the great white sharks out of the water and onto the platform on the deck. But there's a couple other things that I'm curious about. Can you explain to us a little bit more about the towers? Up there is just the forward mast, crow's nest, if you will. So this boat was originally a Bering Sea Crabber designed for catching crab in Alaska. So granted, they could have used it for multiple purposes back then, but now it's just basically a light tower. So we have one, two, three, five, seven lights up there that we use to kind of illuminate the water at night. So sometimes 
our work schedule carries us into the night, well into the night, and everyone has to be able to see the mothership to get back to it. So whether it be the safe boat running people in from land or the contender, the guys are just finishing up pulling lines for the night and they're coming back, you have to be able to see it as well as it just kind of provides a really cool visual at night for the water. It's a much different than just being in the dark and not being able to see it. And then over here to the left, behind the lift, we actually have our crane. And so that crane is actually how we launch the two tenders off the mothership. All right, so we're heading upstairs to the house. Before we head upstairs, we're going to stand right here. Actually, we're in the breezeway. It's called the breezeway because no matter where you are or what the weather's doing, there's always constantly a breeze through here. It also now doubles as an art gallery. So we've had a couple local artists from the areas we've been in, one in New York and one in Nantucket, come and paint murals actually within the breezeway of sharks and aquatic life and marine specimens in order to kind of lively it up a little bit, you know, as opposed to the regular just really bright sky blue. And over to the starboard side here is the crew room. That's a, a six-man bunk. That's where I sleep as well as our ship manager. And then our first mate will sleep in there as well when we're on expedition. And we'll have scientists or researchers take up the top three bunks. Off the back here, off the stern, is our swim deck. If we're in a place with nice water and it's a beautiful day, we'll just go swimming off that. That's where I launch the canoes. During expedition, we'll be standing there to catch bait, essentially. So while the contender's out fishing for sharks, there's always people back here with lines in the water trying to get bait because it's always best to use local bait but fresher bait essentially so there's always someone back here fishing whether it be for fun or for bait or dinner if we can out of curiosity dj why does the back of the boat say o search and then underneath it park city utah o search's head office is in park city utah so that's where the boat's registered to and that's where the boss man lives that's actually a really common question we get people go oh how'd you get it here from utah and our favorite response is high tide or it's a, not a boat, it's a hovercraft. DJ, just because it's so beautiful, can you tell the listeners what you're looking at right now? So the sun hasn't set completely. There's still some pretty solid color aura coming from the horizon, which is reflecting off the water. And we're in the middle of a slack tide right now, so the water's pretty still. And the reflection's beautiful, especially with the clouds. It's not too cloudy, and there's not no clouds. It's just pretty beautiful. Over to my left here, we have Mary Ross Park. It's beautiful downtown Brunswick. There's this little lighthouse surrounded by palm trees. A couple ways back here from us in a different spot. I believe it's a shrimp boat from Alabama. Not sure. They got here last night and it has a nice paint job on it. It's a pretty beautiful boat as well. And it's very peaceful. If you look down the river ways a little more, you can see the bridge takes you over to that Jekyll Island. It's a pretty cool place. And then along the river from here to that bridge is other shrimp boats, some tugs, Everything's like that, and there's solid lights from everywhere reflecting across the water, and it makes for a pretty beautiful scene. Brad, let's head upstairs. Okay. These stairs are kind of steep, so hold on to the railing. So let's get to the top of these steps here. We'll be up in the galley where Chef Louie has made us some delicious spaghetti. So Chef Louie is the man. He feeds... 24 people, three meals a day for 24 days. And then lunchtime, when we're on expedition, we'll have like 45, 50 people out on deck, and he makes them all lunch. One man show does it all by himself, cooks, cleans, everything. It's pretty incredible. He's definitely the hardest working person here. In the galley here, you know, there's two tables, a TV, bunny ear, rabbit ear, antennas. So not too much signal coming through there. There's some state rooms on this level as well, two bunk rooms, and the masters. That's pretty much all for this floor we're gonna head on up to the wheelhouse now and show you all that 
So heading up some other more steep stairs. Is this the wheelhouse? Helm's over there on your starboard side. You're more than welcome if you want Mandela to sit in one of these chairs and get a feel for what it's like to go on transit, I guess. So when we're on transit, this is pretty much where everyone hangs out during the day. There's always someone on watch. It's not necessarily the captain. But there's someone always watching to make sure, you know, obviously that we're going on the right track and not hitting anything. Back behind you there, actually, is the salon where a bunch of grown men sit really close to each other on a small couch and watch romantic comedies and cry and all that good stuff. <laughs> and the captain's room is up here. His quarters are there. What's going on here with equipment? This is the helm over here. We have all of our navigation equipment, our sounders, our GPSs, thermometers. Our autopilot's right here as well. So when we're on long trip, we don't have to necessarily steer the boat the whole time. You just pop on the autopilot and just kind of keep an eye on it, and then it makes navigation way easier. Our radar's right here. Our security cameras come up on this screen. And then out this door is the third-level deck. 360-degree deck that actually goes around the entire kind of house area, which allows for you to pretty much see everything. If there were to be a shark on the lift, this is one of the best vantage points up here, as opposed to being on the lift itself. It's actually right up here in this forward corner. So you can see, if you're right here, and the lift goes up and over, I mean, you have a bird's eye on everything that's going on. This is solid hang out here. It's also a pretty good just view of the deck. We're out on um, expedition. There's generally always someone kind of in this general area with uh, some binoculars, some long glasses, just looking out to see if they see a fin, discoloration, any sort of like upwelling, anything that could sometimes will set drum lines. So keep an eye on them, make sure none of the gear's moving. Keep an eye to help the fishing guys out because if they, we see something that they don't, we got to call them on the radio and say, hey, come get it. And that's what the benefit of this year deck is. So that brings me to one of my questions I wanted to ask you earlier, DJ, about sharks in South Africa. When they breach, they actually are coming completely out of the water, and they call them the flying sharks of Cape Town. My question is, how often does a shark come out of the water and hang out with its fin above the surface for more than 90 seconds? Because you guys have your shark tracker app. This app actually shows where great white sharks and tiger sharks are all over the world that you guys have tagged. But you can only get a GPS location on the shark when its fin has been above the water in the air for 90 seconds. So how often do sharks do that? I didn't think that that was something that happened that often. So what we've actually just recently found out is that they do it a lot more than we think as an energy conservation method. So what will happen is sharks will come up and they'll breach and they're surfing. So they'll come up, hit a wave and ride that wave as long as they can as opposed to being under the surface and tail flapping constantly and wasting all that energy. So now they have more energy for eating, hunting, reproduction. So that's why they'll do that. As for breaching, I actually saw my first breach a couple months ago, and that was amazing. It was so cool. you know, I'd always seen it on TV and stuff, but never actually in person. And I saw a 12-foot white shark fly out of the water entirely and come back down. It was very exciting. I kind of near about pissed myself. <laughs> this shark didn't breach to eat. She was already hooked up, and then she came up. I haven't seen one breach for feeding, but I have seen them come and hit the seal decoy pretty hard. Not come out of the water, but most of their heads out, and they'll hit the decoy, kind of come down on it, bail out, come back, try it again, mm -hmm. things like that. But I haven't seen any take a bait and fly, like which happens in South Africa, which I would love to see. <laughs> I'm sure you will, DJ. This boat has been to South Africa, and I'm sure it will go back to South Africa. 
Let's talk about the decoys, the seal decoy, and some of the other ways that you guys get the sharks to come in. There's a little bit of controversy with this in South Africa because of chumming, which is where they throw the blood and dead fish into the water to attract sharks to the boat. And then they put humans inside of cages in the water. So some people believe that that is making sharks think that when there's humans in the water that they're also going to be fed. Of course, some disagree with that. I'd love to hear your view on that and then some of the techniques you guys use to bring the sharks in so that you can research them. Working in this field of work, you know, you talk to a lot of different people about different things. And some people say that if you have a cage diving operation that the people who run those have kind of trained the animal to associate boats with food. Whereas what I've seen personally is white sharks are very skittish and shy creatures. They don't associate anything really with food. We were out in Nantucket. We had some females coming up and we'd have actual bait in the water and they would come sniff it and then bail out. They would circle the entire contender and then come circle the mothership, bail out, come back, do it again, bail out. So they're very skittish, very shy. Anything kind of freaks them out because, you know, you don't get big being dumb. You got to be very careful if you want to be a big shark. But our techniques are pretty simple, actually. We don't really chum with blood or anything like that. Just take frozen fish and throw a couple chunks in, let them sink around, float around, get a little bit of oil out of them. But it's nothing aggressive. You know, I've seen videos on the Internet of people dumping five-gallon buckets of blood in the water and absolutely nothing like that but then the decoys actually are what i've seen firsthand is the decoys working very well so drop the decoy out behind the contender shape on the surface what's that you know shark comes up sniffs around a little bit and goes okay so it's like they don't come up and hit the decoy and like try and freak out on it they just come and they're curious they're very curious which is one of the big issues that i think people have with shark attacks you know and people are like oh something hit me in the leg in the water yeah because it didn't know what you were you know it came and said hey all right never mind you're gross you're people and they scoot on out of there that's nothing crazy and that's one of the big things that we try and do here is replace fear with facts essentially so kind of get that fear mongering out of the way and let people actually realize that like okay so there's people who go to the beach say you've gone to the beach your entire life for 35 years you swim in the same waters for 35 years. All of a sudden, there's a shark attack. You're not going to go in that water anymore. Those sharks didn't just show up. You know, they've been there the entire time. There was just a freak accident, a case of mistaken identity, essentially. That's one of the very important reasons of getting this research and knowing where these animals are is not for protection purposes, but to influence policy if you can. We know where the animals are. If we could find out where they're breeding or like if they're here and they're giving birth here, this area needs to be protected, not Oh, they're here, they're not breeding here. Tell everyone and make them get away. Luckily, Captain Brett, like I said earlier, the man can catch anything. So he kind of just puts us on the spot to where we need to be, to where we don't have to dump five gallons of blood in the water and hope something comes near it. We can go to them, not them come to us, you know what I mean? And again, there is an app you can download onto your phone called Global Shark Tracker. So you are able to track the sharks, that way you know where they are, and that's how you can go to them and then put some fish into the water to further attract them. Correct. That's correct. Okay, so let's talk about the seal decoy. Do you guys just throw it in the water and float around? Do you drag it? The seal decoy, the way it's rigged, it actually runs off a garage and reel. And you just let line out, put it on free spool, let the current take it out. Every now and then reel it in, swim it in like you would any other kind of fishing bait. Swim it in, swim it in, see if something comes up to it. If nothing comes up to it, you let it out some more. It's a pretty active process, really. And DJ, earlier you said something very beautiful, and that was that you don't get big being stupid. And so let's take it back a few million years 
perhaps 65 million, 100 million years and talk about sharks back then and perhaps how old the great white shark is. Uh, <laughs> it's a dinosaur. They've been around since the beginning. They're absolutely dinosaurs. What's kept them around so long is that they're not stupid. They get big and stay around forever by being smart or beyond adequate hunters, really. It also helps when you pop out of the wound at three and a half feet. They don't have too many predators. Okay, earlier, DJ, you were talking about the seal decoy and how the sharks don't necessarily just go for it and attack them. And it comes back to the sharks just being curious. And I've heard it related to a baby. When a baby's crawling around on the ground, that's why you can't have dangerous things out because they put them in their mouth when they're investigating what they are. And so sharks are perhaps the same. They'll bump you or they'll put something in their mouth just to see what it is. Yeah, very similar to babies. And I mean, I think all sharks are babies anyway, which is, makes my job a whole lot easier when I look at one and I go, oh, it's a baby, <laughs> even though it's 13 and a half feet. Definitely, and they don't have hands, you know, where like as a child would have hands that can actually explore something. The only sense they have other than like they have an electrolysis, so they have like electric sensors in their head, so they can detect the electrical currents of things, which humans have as well, but they don't know anything unless they put it in their mouth get a taste of it, get like a feel of it even. And that's why you only hear of shark attacks. No one's ever been eaten by a shark. Because if people got eaten by sharks, you would never hear of a shark attack. You'd be like, oh, that person went missing. Because, you know, they were eaten. No, it's just, it was curious. It came, it bumped you. It maybe bumped you a little too hard or something like that. And they don't know any better. It's a whole different animal than people. That kind of mental process isn't there. They have to actually explore something compare myself to a shark kind of always been the same way i always learn by doing something the wrong way you know that's the best way to figure out how not to do something so you know you go you bite it a little bit oh no i didn't like that at all i'm not gonna do it anymore and they go away you're listening to the trail less traveled recorded on location on the o search research vessel which is a ship that's 130 feet long 35 feet wide it has traveled all over the world researching the great white shark and i've been speaking with the dj he is a deckhand. Right now we're standing on the third level of the ship, right next to where the captain sits, looking down on the boat. It's dark now. Thank you so much, DJ. Thank you for coming and interviewing me. I've never done an interview before, so this was awesome for me as well. Before we close, I'd like for you to just share some fun facts that you know about the Great White from your time spent on this boat. Fun facts about white sharks. Really cool when they pop out of their mother, on average eight of them at a time. So that's why pregnant white sharks are big as they are because there's eight of them swimming around inside of her and they come out at like three and a half feet and like 50 pounds so that's what makes babies actually super fun to like catch and play with because you can just you know there's teeny tiny little things but you know how big it's gonna get looking into those beady little black eyes is just a game changer for every like you get fully entranced and you're like wow this is a cool thing here live birth definitely and then the little guys swim around and it's interesting also to me the mother doesn't stick around, pops them out and dips. So the babies just kind of come out knowing their instinctual heritage is insane. Other fun facts about white sharks. Male sharks have two penises. So that was surprising as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about tiger sharks? You guys also study tiger sharks. How are they different from great whites? They're squirrely. Very, very squirrely. So with white sharks, when they get on the lift, they're pretty calm because that's a lot to try and move in the way their body's shaped. You know, they're very broad all the way down. Whereas tiger sharks kind of taper down towards the tail fin. And 
they're a lot more streamlined. So when they're on the lift, you know, they calm down just the same way white sharks do. But when they try and thrash a little bit, if they do, it's a whole lot more movement than a white shark. So a white shark might get one or two thrashes in and they're done. Tiger sharks can bend themselves way more. They're just much more agile in that sense. So that's the only real difference I've seen. It's easier to grab a tiger shark by its tail than a white shark. They're much broader. Do tiger sharks almost get into this about the same size of a great white? Not really. I've only seen an 11 and a half foot tiger shark and I've seen a 13 foot white shark. And the 11 and a half was a pretty grown one and that 13 footer was a teenager. White sharks can get up to like 20 feet and can also live to be 80. DJ, what is it that you love most about the white shark? Their eyes. Definitely their eyes. Because there's just a whole lot of mystery down in there. You know, you see pictures of sharks and everything. You never really see a picture of their eyes. But when you get down right next to one, like face-to-face, and you look in those beady black eyes that really show nothing but show everything at the same time, you know, there's just so much mystery there that you're like, I want to know everything else. What have you seen? Because you've been around a lot longer than I have. Mystery, and it's really blank, you know? Whereas, like, people, you can kind of look in their eyes and, like, kind of tell a little bit, but sharks, it's blank. DJ, let's end this show with three adventure tips. Don't make a plan. Get a general idea of where you're going. Just let the rest happen. Make it an adventure as opposed to planning one. Because if you plan an adventure, something doesn't happen. Then you're all like bummed out. But if you just kind of get an initial step forward, you're like, all right, well, let's make the rest of it happen. Second adventure tip, be prepared for not knowing what you're doing. Third adventure tip, have a solid soundtrack to go with you. And on that note, DJ, what song would you like to end the show with? Redemption Song by Bob Marley. I'd like to do that one because of the course of it is Emancipate Yourself from Mental Slavery, None But Ourselves Can Free Our Minds. That second line, None But Ourselves Can Free Our Minds, you know, that's very true. You know, you have to do it for yourself. But at the same time, an adventure gives you a much better opportunity to actually go forth and do that as opposed to sitting somewhere where you're not changing anything. Namaste, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. Subscribe to the free Trail Less Traveled podcast on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. I would like to thank my guest for this week, DJ Latiri. DJ is originally from Sedley, Virginia, and is currently the deckhand on the O-Search, which is a vehicle for scientists to have access to animals that they normally wouldn't have access to, namely the Great White Shark. The O-Search has completed 26 worldwide expeditions, including Australia, South Africa, Chile, the Galapagos, the Gulf of Mexico, and the western and eastern coast of the United States. In addition to global conservation, outreach, and education, OSEARCH shares real-time data through their free Global Shark Tracker. You can find out more and donate to this amazing research by visiting osearch.org, and that is spelled O-C-E-A-R-C-H dot org. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you 
the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. Tonight's show was recorded on location on board the O-Search research vessel off the Atlantic coast of Georgia. My adventure tip this week is to travel light and pack clothes and gear that you can gift to those in need. Well, that's it for this week, but until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the thing about the gnar is, it simply doesn't shred itself.